Welcome to the journal that I use the explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Michelle Hennessy, and this week, what's happening in Brazil's closely fought presidential election? Brazil's next leader will be one of two men, current President Jair Bolsonaro or former President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva. In the run-up to the vote, it was looking as though Lula could be headed for an outright majority. But after the first round in the election, the result was much closer than the polls had indicated. Lula won 48% of the votes, while Bolsonaro took 43%. Well, the race isn't over yet, but the level of support, not just for Bolsonaro, but also for political supporters of his who were elected to Congress or as governors, has taken many by surprise. This election has been framed as a right versus left-wing rivalry, but it's not really as simple as that. So what do these election results mean? And what's next for Brazil if Lula takes the presidency? Here to talk us through it all is Sam Coey, a journalist based in Brazil, Sao Paulo. Sam, you're very welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Now, the first thing we need to get straight for our listeners is who the main candidates are. Let's look at the incumbent, Jair Bolsonaro, first. Who is he and what's his background? Yeah, so Jair Bolsonaro is a Brazil's first far-right president, um, outspoken admirer of Brazil's military dictatorship, of which he served as an army captain. Donald Trump is his kind of political idol. Bolsonaro was a seven-time congressman re-elected for Rio de Janeiro state. After the military dictatorship, Bolsonaro set about campaigning for better wages for soldiers at the time, which led to a series of disciplinary hearings. um, And eventually he was kicked out of the army because of that. But that also served as the launch for his political career. For most of his political career, he was known as this kind of very reactionary guy that could basically be relied upon to say like, you know, quite outrageous stuff like um, better to have a dead son than a gay son. I'd rather my son died in a car crash than came home with a guy with a mustache. You know, it's just this guy was like known for saying this like crazy outrageous stuff. And in many ways, he was kind of like a proto social media character in many ways before social media was ever around because you know he was this guy that could be guaranteed if you bring him on the tv he would say some crazy stuff basically and so no one ever really paid him that much attention but this whole time his like influence in rio de janeiro was growing and you know in 2014 which was one of the first elections that i covered in brazil he was rio de janeiro's most elected congressman right And straight away, even then, even though people still considered him an extremely fringe politician, you know, there were some murmurs that he would try for the presidency. And then basically what happened, you had a series of setbacks in Brazil. You know, Brazil in the early 2000s and early 2010s, you know, went through a period under Lula's presidency, went through a period of sustainable growth, job creation, social inclusion, millions being lifted out of poverty. Brazil's soft power on the world stage like really grew, right? And then somewhere around 2013, you had these like huge protests which erupted in Brazil, ostensibly because of transport fare uh, hikes, basically. You know, transport fare in Brazil is, you know, pretty high considering, uh, you know, what the average worker's wage is and, you know, the, the, the fares go up each year and, you know, the local, 
the local mayor's offices and state governors are often kind of in cahoots with the bus companies who are also there you know, political donors, you know, at least that was the case back then. But, you know, there was also the, the protests also explode over like World Cup spending. And then around the same time, you know, for completely disconnected reasons, Brazil started falling into a recession. And then um, you had the 2014 elections in which Lula's successor, Dilma Rousseff, she won like a second term. The opposition cried foul. We have a joke here in Brazil, which is uh, the gringos imitando, the gringos imitating, um, you know, and that's a joke that we pull out, you know, each time that basically uh, when Donald Trump wouldn't accept the results, basically, you know, ASEO Neves, Dilma's opponent, did this in 2014, basically. And so you had this, this recession started and then at the same time you had the, you know, exposure of this massive corruption scandal known as Lava Jato or Car Wash, which was basically a kickback scandal that centered around the state uh, oil giant Petrobras. And like lots of people in Lula's party and Lula's coalition were uh, implicated in this scandal. Lots of people went to jail. Lula himself, in the end, ended up going to jail and these like, you know, controversial uh, charges against him, which were later annulled by the Supreme Court. But anyway, all of this created this kind of like anti-politics climate that in 2018 essentially paved the way for Jair Bolsonaro, who, as I say before then, had been this kind of fringe but cult figure that had been building, you know, on the kind of like far right fringes of Brazilian politics. And, you know, Bolsonaro won the won the presidency in 2018. It came as a shock to many people. Um, I won't boast too much, but it didn't come as a shock too much to myself because everywhere I'd been in the country, you know, over the last few years, people had been saying, you know, oh, yeah, going to vote for Bolsonaro and stuff like this. So it wasn't such a shock to myself. And so, yeah, and that's where and that and that that took us up to 2018. And then uh, Bolsonaro took office in 2019 straight away his own administration was rocked with kind of accusations of corruption. Uh... Sam, I might just get you to go back a bit because before we talk about his time in office, I want to ask you about what it was that got him elected. It seems like from what you were saying that Bolsonaro really tapped into the kind of frustration there was among the people of Brazil at the time. But what were the key messages in his campaign that resonated with people? Well, there's many things, really. Also, what's really important to note here is the collapse of the centre-right in Brazil. What you'd had for many years in Brazil was a kind of centre-right, centre-left. Both parties, the PT, Workers' PT and the PSDB, the more centre-right-leaning party, both parties that had emerged from the democratic struggle of the military dictatorship. But then, yeah, both parties were tainted by the corruption scandals of, of, of you know, that centred around the oil giant Petrobras. And the centre-right basically caved. Uh, the centre-left, you know, maintained as a party, even though Lula was in jail. You know, Lula was leading, the, you know, the polls to win the presidency in 2018. And then he was jailed on these controversial charges that were later annulled. And then, you know, the, the judge that jailed him, Sergio Moro, went on to become... Uh, Bolsonaro's justice minister. So I think it's important to know all of that before. But going back to your question about the messages, Bolsonaro was and his camp, they run like a, an extremely successful kind of like shoestring kind of campaign, essentially. 
uh, on social media and especially WhatsApp and just tapped into a bunch of popular disconsent. The corruption allegations, even though Bolsonaro had had corruption allegations against him, but he made a point of saying that he never had. Um, and since then, he's had many corruption allegations against him. You know, so the, it was it was essentially corruption. Religion was another big factor. There was this whole, you know, Brazil's grown from being a predominantly, you know, a, a, you know, an almost exclusively Catholic country to now, you know, a third of the country, at least possibly even more because we don't have the latest census numbers. But at least a third of the country is like evangelical Christians, some of which are extremely conservative. And, you know, Bolsonaro, who's always had this kind of hardline stance on, you know, the traditional family and, you know, speaking out against the rights of, uh, of, of what they consider to be the encroaching rights of gay people, of LGBT, of trans people uh, in Brazil. So there was that factor. And then the, the other factor is the kind of the, 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 the agricultural phenomenon. You know, Brazil was a country that for many years has been defined by its coastal cities, Rio de Janeiro and Sao Paulo, when in fact these days the growing powers are in the interior of the state, you know, places like Mato Grosso, uh, you know, this is farming super state, like, you know, the biggest producer of soy Certainly in Brazil, perhaps the world, in fact, actually, I mean, you know, Brazil is the, the world's biggest soy uh, exporter and producer. And in this kind of like interior heartland, you know, people tend to be more conservative. People tend to be um, into kind of traditional family values. It's, you know, you know, to put it in broad terms, it's like this difference between the kind of like metropolitan elite and hinterland kind of interior hinterland argument that we also find with, you know, Trump in the States, for example, for, for want for a better comparison. Um, and, you know, Bolsonaro is actually from, you know, was born in one of these kind of interior poor community in the, the, in the interior of Sao Paulo state known as El Dorado. A lot of the things he says resonates with like large portions of the population. And then there was also another factor involved here, which was the crime factor. You know, Brazil in 2017, the year before Bolsonaro uh, took office, saw 64,000 homicides, right? You know, that's more than any other country in the world. You know, numbers have gone down since then. But, you know, Bolsonaro also tapped into that, right? He always, Bolsonaro has always had an extremely hard line discourse on crime. You know, bandido bombe, bandido morto, like, you know, a dead criminal, a good criminal is a dead criminal, right? And so, you know, rightly or wrongly, if you're living in Brazil and you're uh, earning $250 a month as your minimum wage, and you buy a new cell phone on uh, on on credit on layaway for a hundred dollars, and you're paying it off for the next eighteen months, and then someone steals it again, rightly or wrongly, when somebody's up there who's running for the presidency, who says, you know, yeah, the good, the only good criminal is a dead criminal, and you know, we, you know, human rights is for right humans, and all of this kind of, you know, uh, uh, rhetoric, this hardline anti-crime rhetoric. Again, as I say, rightly or wrongly, it resonates with lots of people. And so these were some of the main messages that were being, um, um, you know, that, that Bolsonaro was, uh, was speaking of uh, on his path to victory. Basically the same things that he's been speaking about forever. And when it comes to Bolsonaro's presidency during that time, I mean, there were a lot of points during the presidency that he was criticised. Uh, one of those main periods would have been during the COVID pandemic. More than 680,000 Brazilians died during that time. How do people in Brazil feel about his handling of the pandemic? Well, it's a huge split, right? You know, people that like Bolsonaro 
I uh, think he did a great job and people that don't like him, you know, perhaps sometimes, you know, uh, being a bit over the top, you know, accusing of genocide. Um, throughout the pandemic, you know, he said a bunch of things that, you know, like resonated really badly with people, right? You know, oh, I'm not a grave digger. Oh, you know, what do you want me to do about it? You know, like this kind of very kind of like quite callous approach at times, you know, when, you know, lots and lots of people were dying. You know, while that horrified, you know, large portions of the population where places where I am, like downtown Sao Paulo, which was in complete lockdown and where people were dying all the time and where, you know, there were queues for hospitals, then, you know, you would you would look at Bolsonaro's handling of the pandemic and think that it had been atrocious. Whilst, you know, as some of the cities that I visited, you know, during the pandemic, you go out there and the cities hadn't had any deaths, they hadn't had any hospitalizations. Or perhaps there'd been a few, but like it hadn't been this thing that really affected people, right? But the lockdowns were, you know, had 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 a huge effect on the local economy. And so, again, rightly or wrongly, then when someone goes on the TV railing against uh, uh, lockdowns, railing against like you know these restrictive measure, measures that were put in place by local mayors and governors, again, rightly or wrongly, it's a message that resonates uh, with lots of people. So that's the current president. Can you tell us a bit now about Luis Inácio Lula da Silva? He's more commonly known as Lula. What's his background? Yeah, so Lula was born into uh, extreme poverty in Brazil's northeast, uh, moved to Sao Paulo as a boy, uh, worked as a shoe shiner, worked in a factory, lost a finger working in a factory, rose up through the kind of union, the union apparatus and the Metal Workers Union, um, participated and led strikes in the 1980s, uh, in the late 70s and 80s, that essentially led to the military regime loosening its grip on power, was one of the key figures in the uh, reinstatement of democracy in Brazil, ran for president in 1989, lost, ran for president in 1994, uh, lost, uh, 1993, sorry, to take office in 94, uh, lost, uh, ran again the next year, lost, and then won won for the first time in 2002, around the same time that Brazil, that the world, in fact, was seeing a commodities boom through China's growth at the time. China and Brazil became huge trading partners. Lula used the commodities boom uh, to to fund social policies and job creation and a bunch of other things that basically led to, you know, millions of of Brazilians being like, you know, lifted out of extreme poverty. You know, you had this kind of like period where Brazil which had always been, you know, perhaps rather cruelly described um, as the, 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 the future, of the, the country of the future, and it always will be. You know, by the time Lula finished his presidency in 2010 with, like, approval ratings of, like, 85%, many Brazilians thought this future had arrived. And then he elected his successor, Dilma Rousseffi. Then from there, he kind of, like, took a bit of a backseat he moved back onto the political scene again in around 2016 as Brazil, you know, was in the midst of recession and Dilma's government was on the rocks. He was, he, he was sworn in to be Dilma's chief of staff to try and save her government. 
that uh, that motion was uh, was was annulled by a judge because of a recording which was you know an illegal recording which was uh, broadcast on the national news program by the judge of the corruption case that was happening at the time the car wash investigation you know which was you know just absolutely rocking the political class in Brazil at the time that basically alleged that Lula was being uh, uh, sworn in as chief of staff in order to get him protection, a kind of immunity from any kind of uh, prosecution or jail or arrest or anything like that turned out to be, you know, subsequently extremely dubious and false, uh, that allegation. But uh, at the time, it had the effect that it did, right? In terms of those money laundering allegations, I mean, he was prosecuted, right? He went to prison for that. The charges were thrown out and the judge was uh, perceived to have been have acted with bias. And when it comes to corruption allegations in Brazil, I mean, obviously, corruption among politicians is something that the Brazilian electorate has seen a lot of. So do those types of scandals or political scandals in general hold much weight when it comes to voting? Or are people more focused on the policies that they uh, agree or disagree with or the candidate they like better? Uh, I mean, it, does that actually have an impact, these types of allegations or scandals? It's a really great question because basically what it comes down to is whether the economy is good at the time. If we look at the 2005 uh, Mincelon scandal, which it was alleged that Lula's government was paying monthly salaries to politicians in order to get you know votes in Congress to pass bills and stuff like this, it was never really quite proven. And then the even though several people went to jail, and then the you know the the guy that busted the scandal, Roberto Jefferson is actually in jail himself now. To answer your question, basically what it comes down to uh, is that, yeah, corruption in Brazil and corruption accusations are completely weaponized. And usually there is, you know, as people say, right, there's no no smoke without fire, right? But like in terms of how voters perceive these things, it often really just depends on how the economy is at the time. Now, one of the reasons that Lula's party, the Workers' Party, which is still, you know, the most popular party in Brazil, but like one of the reasons it lost so much uh, support uh, and that led to the the impeachment of Dilma Hosefi in 2016 was because so many people associated the recession and the economic crisis with the corruption scandals, uh, which they then, you know, they then blamed on Lula's government. And of course, Lula's government was at least partly to blame for those corruption allegations, right? There were people in his government that, you know, had taken part, but there were also, you know, huge members of the coalition. You know, Brazil's all about like coalition politics, right? You know, you have like 30 parties in Congress, you know, and those same parties that were accused of like extreme corruption in Lula's coalition government, you know, parties like the Progressive Party, you know, now they're in Bolsonaro's coalition, right? But then corruption is a huge problem in Brazil, right, as well. Um, it's not to take away the fact, it's not to take anything away from those accusations or from the fact that it's a huge problem in Brazil and that people's lives suffer because of it, right? Like, um, there, are ex- there are extremely poor people in Brazil who live extremely badly and there are, you know, politicians in Brazil that live extremely well off of ill-gotten gains from from the state, basically. And Lula has been doing very well in the polls, obviously. And even though the results were close, he's still in the lead. So what's driving that support for him? What kind of policies is he running on that are very popular? Well, I think 
you know, for a start, many people, I remember Lula's government as being, you know, essentially the best time for Brazil in terms of it being the most socially inclusive. Uh, most of Brazil's poor, right? Like in, in relative terms. And, you know, those people in the main saw like a pretty concrete advance in living standards under Lula's government and those that you know perhaps weren't weren't born at the time or you know you know or weren't politically engaged at the time they would have heard about this time as a kind of like golden age of kind of like Brazil right um so there's there's that the fact is that like you know although the economy is improving in Brazil and it has improved like quite a lot in recent months you know you know, it's improved in terms of GDP figures. It hasn't in terms of in ter- it hasn't improved really in terms of people's lives getting better, right? You know, people are still going hungry. You know, you have 33 million Brazilians right now that don't have enough to eat. And so when Lula goes on the TV and said, repeats the same thing that he said when he, when he was sworn into the presidency in 2003, that like his mission is that every Brazilian gets to have breakfast, lunch and dinner, Again, it's something that resonates with the population, right? You know, so there's that. There's also probably we've seen a, a kind of, in, like, as with many parts of the world, we've seen a kind of like, a, as we call a, a, a precariousness of workers' conditions, you know, more delivery drivers working without contracts, things like this, less formal jobs being available. And for those kind of gig workers that are, you know, delivering food, uh, working in other delivery services um, in big cities like Sao Paulo. You know, it's 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 widely understood that Lula wants to at least introduce some kind of legislation that would uh, enable better protection for for these for these low income gig workers. So yeah, these are these are two of the main things, and just a general promise of improvement in living standards for the majority of the Brazilian population. And then you have, of course, like many in Brazil, especially among the kind of like more middle class or the intellectual elite that back Lula because they see Bolsonaro as a democratic threat, basically. So for some people, it's really just that they want Bolsonaro gone rather than they're crazy in love with Lula. Yeah, that's a really, really important point to make as well. This is not the Brazil of 2002. Uh, people of 2003. This is not, you know, the Brazil of the mid 2000s, where people were enchanted with Lula and his Workers' Party. Yeah, this is like, it's a, it's an election on Bolsonaro, whether we want Bolsonaro in or out, basically. And like Lula's the strongest candidate to do that. Basically, it's not an election which is like, oh, we, you know, like where the majority of the population is like, we want Lula back. No, it's like many people will be voting Lula because they want Bolsonaro out. Of course, many people will be voting Lula because they think he's the best candidate. And, you know, we saw that in the, in the, in the, in the, in the results just now. But, um, you know, a large part of this has more to do with getting Bolsonaro out for much of the population than necessarily because, because they love Lula so much. So the results we had last weekend are just the first round results for the presidential candidates. And there were nine other candidates that obviously didn't make it through to the next round. So can you explain how the system works, the voting system? And what do the results of the other candidates who aren't making it through tell us about Brazil and politics in Brazil at the moment? Yeah, the results show that like this is a two horse race and this has been a two horse race since Lula entered the political scene again, uh, you know, last year, essentially. Um, 
normally what happens is that you have 10, you know, presidential candidates, but usually you have like a third candidate or maybe even a fourth candidate that, you know, are also slightly competitive. I mean, if you look now, I think it was Simone Tebet, I think she got, who's the third place candidate, I think she got 5%. Cerro Gomez got 3%. And so, yeah, I mean, the situation is that, like, you know, you know, any number of candidates can run for the presidency, you know, as many people can as they like. But only a certain amount will, you know, reach the amount of votes needed to have any impact. And yeah, only two go through to the next round, right? And so how engaged are people in Brazil with the election? Voter turnout was quite high, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Voter turnout was higher than the last election, yeah. The number of abstentions were um, quite a lot lower than last time. Yeah, and I think that just reflects how people view this election, right? People that uh, support the incumbent Bolsonaro broadly see the return of Lula's Workers' Party as coming back, you know, the return of a party that was tainted with corruption, that's leader went to jail, that presided over the worst recession in Brazil's history, more extreme elements of, 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 of extreme voters of Bolsonaro will view the return of Lula as how they say themselves as though Brazil running the risk of becoming Venezuela. If you look um, at Bolsonaro's allies, his governor's allies that were elected uh, 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 just now, you know, in the state race, right? So, you know, I just watched a video on Instagram right now of one of the governors uh, in the Amazon state of Horaima, where they've had a huge influx of Venezuelans saying, yeah, no, Brazil can't become like our neighbor Venezuela. Uh, and that's why we need Bolsonaro to be elected. And Stuff like this, you know, stuff that like is mostly untrue, but again, rightly or wrongly resonates with like a large portion of the population. Right. And then, you know, Lula's supporters, they broadly view uh, another Bolsonaro government as, you know, the start of the end of democracy in Brazil. The death of the Amazon rainforest would lead to an increase in political persecution would lead to, you know, the consolidation of a kind of corrupt and self-serving family political dynasty. You know, so this is the kind of the two uh, sides of the of, of, of the election that we're that we're seeing here right in, here right now in Brazil. Right. That's basically, you know, the two the two opposite sides and how they view the other in terms of uh, of, of taking power in this election. So, yeah. It's, uh, and that's why voter turnout has been so high, um, because, you know, people are super engaged with this election because either side views it as a uh, as the most important election for ensuring Brazil's future. And finally, I'm wondering if we get to the 30th of October and Lula wins, will Bolsonaro accept the results? There is talk of a self-coup. How likely is that? Yeah, I mean, it depends what we mean by self-coup, right? Um, you know, Bolsonaro has said, you know, he's he, for for the last, you know, year or 18 months or for forever, basically, he's, you know, cast doubt in Brazil's electronic voting system, uh, saying that it's vulnerable to fraud. Uh, you know, it's the same voting system, of course, that elected him, you know, and elected his, four, his, his three sons to politics, you know, never had a problem with it before. 
uh, and curiously enough, didn't have a problem with it when it gave him a, a better than expected result uh, on Sunday. But yeah, so, you know, he's been, you know, casting doubt, sowing doubt on the voting system and that it's vulnerable to fraud, presenting no evidence, contrary to everybody, you know, the federal police, you know, uh, uh, you know, members of his own coalition, even, you know, going back to your question about a self coup, I mean, it depends quite, fr quite frankly, Brazil doesn't, uh, Bolsonaro, sorry, doesn't seem to have the muscle, the institutional support to pull off like, you know, a classical coup d'etat, like what happened uh, in Brazil in 1964. I mean, I may be wrong, of course, but that doesn't seem likely. What does seem likely and more probable, however, is that, you know, he will rail his troops. And when I say his troops, I'm not necessarily talking about the army, but supporters to possibly cause havoc on the streets, right? I mean, you know, whether he does that himself, he doesn't even need to do it himself, right? He doesn't need to say anything. A few tacit nods here, his supporters and his supporters network have an entire, you know, extremely well-organized and sophisticated, you know, uh, uh, network of WhatsApp and social media. You know, he would have plausible deniability for most of this. You know, he wouldn't need to say anything on the eve itself. And like many of his supporters disgruntled, you know, would possibly take up arms and commit violence as several of them have done already if they if the result was not how they wanted right you know so i mean you know how this manifests itself whether it be in terms of some kind of uprising or attack on like institutions on, on on buildings like what happened you know in the united states on capitol hill whether you know an angry mob was to attack the supreme court you know which has kind of been a bit of a thorn in bolsonaro's side throughout this whole presidency and kind of is his you know, sworn enemy as an institution. It's the institution that he most, you know, rails against when he's giving his uh, uh, authoritarian discourses. Um, you know, this is what, you know, this is what, this is what remains to be seen, essentially, how, you know, how, how, how this disorder would play out, basically, and, you know, and what elements of institutions would be on side with the, would some members of the rank and file of the, of the, of, of the army be on his side, would some members of the rank and file in certain states of the military police be on side? You know, would it be a series of, you know, almost uh, private civic militias that had been armed up because of Bolsonaro's, you know, relaxation of gun laws? Would they take to the streets? Would they, you know, it remains, you know, this, this, is, this is what we're, this is what we're waiting to see and this is what, you know, lots of people have been worried about for a long time now. Yeah, so a bit of an uncertain period ahead for Brazil and you'll of course have a busy time yourself over the next few weeks. Sam, I want to thank you so much for coming on to talk us through it all today. Thanks for having me. Thanks to everyone who listened to this episode of The Explainer and thanks again to Sam for joining me. This episode was brought to you by producers Eva Barry and Nikki Ryan. If you liked what you heard and you want to support The Explainer, there are a few things you can do. You can head to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute to become a monthly subscriber, or you could leave us a rating and a review as well if you're feeling generous, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.